What is going on, true crime fans? I'm your host, Heath. And I'm your other host, Daphne. And you're listening to Going West. Today, we have a case for you that you probably haven't heard of, but that connects to a case you probably have heard of. But first, we want to give thanks to those who left us a five-star review on iTunes this past week. Thank you so much to Leah from Cincinnati, Ohio, and Bridget from Seattle. And a big thanks to Tara from Barnegat, New Jersey, and Denny from LFK. Thank you so much to Karen from California and Allison from Portland, Oregon. And then we've got Meg from New Jersey and Rosie from South Dakota. Big thanks to Kelly from Massachusetts and Sarah from Georgia. And then Terry from Minnesota. Heather from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thank you so much to Maddie from Kentucky and Callie from, we're not sure where you're from, but thank you so much. And last but not least, we have Stacy from McDonough, Georgia and Kelly from Sugarland, Texas. Thank you so much, guys. And big thanks to our newest patrons, Nikki, Courtney, and Sarah. You guys are awesome. You're really helping out the show with those subscriptions. And if you guys want to help out the show and get bonus episodes, go check out patreon.com slash going West podcast. And remember guys, if you want a shout out on the show, head over to Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star review, but don't forget to leave your name and your location. All right, guys, you know what it is. This is episode 29 of Going West, so let's get into it. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, a typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Did you do this? One-on-one, talk to me in person alone. Did you do this, Glenn? Did you kill those women, Glenn? One-on-one alone. At the jail, you interview me. Did you kill the women? You hear me? Did you kill these women, Glenn? No. I'm in my mother's house at this time, and they're already looking for Glenn. The phone rings, and I talk to him, and he asked me, should guess who I'm partying with? Nicole Simpson. I'm me. Nobody knew who that was. I thought, well, who's that, Bart Sensen's sister? I mean, just joking. 
He said no, that's when he told me that that, that was O.J. Simpson's wife. Actually, what he told me says, they got money, they're well off, and I'm taking her down. Glenn Rogers, who is also known as the cross-country killer or the Casanova killer, was born on July 15, 1962 in Hamilton, Ohio. He was the sixth of seven siblings from parents Edna and Claude Rogers, and Claude worked as a pump operator at a local paper company while Glenn was growing up. When his parents had the child before Glenn, Edna had tried to get her tubes tied so she couldn't have more children but a judge wouldn't allow her to go forward with the operation because it would put her health in danger. So it's safe to say Glenn was not really wanted by his parents, and his mother was very cold and rejected him throughout his whole life. Throughout his entire upbringing, he was consistently abused by his father Claude, and he acted out a lot. When Glenn was just a toddler around the age of two, he would sit and bang his head on hard surfaces and never cry or get upset about it. When he was around three years old, his mother slapped him so hard that he lost his breath and passed out. I think this information was later passed on by his older brother because it's unlikely that Glenn would have remembered that this happened on his own. But Edna also reportedly held Glenn's head underwater while she bathed him. So it's pretty clear that Glenn had a very terrifying upbringing. So by the age of 12, Glenn began drinking alcohol and doing a lot of drugs, thanks to his older brother Clay. One of them got the wise idea to start robbing houses together that same year in order to have money, since their family had little to none, and they finally got caught after supposedly robbing over 200 homes. This was Glenn's first run-in with the law, and he was sent to reform school after this. The following year, when he was just 13 years old, He attempted suicide by taking 25 tablets of painkiller Motrin. In 1977, at the age of 15, Glenn met a 13-year-old sex worker and the two became involved. But just weeks later, Glenn would be arrested for aggravated menacing. Aggravated menacing is basically when someone threatens to cause someone severe bodily injury. I'm not exactly sure what Glenn did in this situation, but an example would be pointing a gun at someone and threatening to shoot them. With that, Glenn was expelled from school, even though he was flunking out anyway. And at the age of 17, Glenn's father Claude had a very serious and life-threatening stroke, which caused him to be bedridden for the rest of his years. And despite the way he treated Glenn throughout his childhood, Glenn would usually be the one to watch and care for Claude, because Edna was usually out trying to find another man. This search for love would lead Glenn to his second major violent event. So, one night, his mother Edna went out to a bar to meet a man, and Glenn followed her there, and actually beat her date with a baseball bat. It doesn't seem like he was charged for this, though, and it's unknown what the man's condition was after Glenn was done with him. Glenn was just 17 when he had his first child, Clinton Duane, with his 14-year-old girlfriend, Debbie. It wasn't his biological child, though, which he was aware of. Less than a year later, the two got married and carried on to have their second child, who they named Jonathan Claude Rogers. So in 1982, Glenn was just 20 years old and he had his two-year-old son and one-year-old son. But for whatever reason, he was convinced that his wife Debbie was cheating on him. 
So one night he followed her out to see if he could catch her in the act, just like he did with his mom years prior. And he discovered that she picked up a man. So that night, he beat her violently, and this attack would lead to her getting corrective surgery. But of course, she was never quite the same mentally. And it's interesting to me that she had her first child with a different man while she and Glenn were together, and he was okay with that. But now she's out seeing someone, and he beats her senseless. Like, how does that make sense? Yeah, I don't know how that makes sense, but... I remember uh, watching this documentary on Glenn and you can see the photos of him when he's like 20 years old and it seems like he's really kind of happy. He, he seems like he's happy. He's got this girl and he's got these two children he's taking care of. But then everything kind of starts to slip away at some point. So at this point, it's 1985 and Glenn is looking like the shittiest member of the Bee Gees. <laughs> <laughs> and he picks up and he moves to Los Angeles with a girl named Catherine Mary Capoina, who was his latest baby mama, essentially. But this was not a good point in his life, and he actually gets into further trouble when he's in L.A. He would partake in hustles with his older brother, and one night he ended up in the emergency room after injecting Budweiser into his veins and doing too much cocaine. <laughs> That's the most white trash shit I've ever heard. Yes, definitely very white trash. I'm pretty sure he's the first person who has ever injected Budweiser into their veins. Actually, the hospital was very concerned about his mental state, and they believed that he was at a serious risk of physically harming himself or someone else. Within months of this incident, Glenn's father Claude died. There is some speculation that Glenn was the one to kill his father because he was under Glenn's care when he passed, um, but we weren't really not sure about that. It's not hard to believe considering Glenn's incredibly aggressive behavior and passionate hate towards his dad. So over the next few years, Glenn sustained some massive damage to his head, just like he did as a child. He was beaten on the head with clubs, hit in the head with a pool cue, which actually fractured his eye socket and caused intracranial bleeding, and was hit on the head with a tire iron resulting in a bruised skull. These instances were caused by various people who Glenn had gotten into fights with because he was usually at the bar stirring up trouble and getting into a lot of fights with people. In 1991, while Glenn was 28 years old, a man named Thomas Allen Wolsifer was found dead in his nursing home. There's very little known regarding his death, but what we do know is that Glenn told an employee at a bar that he was at one evening that he killed Thomas himself by injecting whiskey into his IV. Police never ended up investigating this potential crime for whatever reason, and it's not known if Glenn even had any relationship with Thomas or if he had just heard about his death somehow and wanted to take credit for it. We all know that murderers like to brag to random people about who they kill, so it really wouldn't surprise me if he did, in fact, murder Thomas. I'm actually just very curious why he has this obsession with injecting himself or other people with alcohol. But I wonder if that's true. Like, I wonder if Thomas was, in fact, injected with, with whiskey or if this is just something that he made up. Yeah, I, I would really like to know myself, and I'm not really sure why police didn't look into it. But regardless, in 1991, Glenn would be arrested for reckless driving as well as causing a fire and causing harm to someone else's property, and he had received a second-degree misdemeanor for these charges. At this point in his life, Glenn was still attempting to overdose on Motrin and injecting alcohol into his veins. 
His doctor tried to get him committed in fear that Glenn would do something drastic, but unfortunately, nothing ever came of it. This is especially unfortunate because just a few months after the doctor attempted to get Glenn locked up, on January 28, 1992, a 30-year-old woman named Carrie Ellen Gaskins was found stabbed to death in Bethel, Ohio. Sadly, she was found by her 12-year-old daughter Sherry several hours after the murder occurred when Sherry came home from school. It's believed that Glenn was the one who murdered her because they did in fact know each other at a time. Apparently, Glenn pimped her out at some point, but it's unknown why he would murder her. Glenn was never properly questioned or charged for her murder, and this still remains unsolved. On January 10th, 1994, police discovered the body of 71-year-old Mark Peters, who was a retired electrician and veteran in Beattyville, Kentucky. Mark was found tied to a chair in a cabin that belonged to Glenn Rogers' family, and his body had been covered by a pile of furniture. Before the murder, Mark had taken Glenn in and let him stay at his house for a few months. In October 1993, so about three months before his body was discovered, Mark Peters was reported missing. His car was gone and many of his valuables were taken too. Glenn's brother Clay, who we have brought up a few times already, used to be incredibly rebellious alongside Glenn, but after some years, Clay has been the biggest piece in making sure Glenn takes responsibility for his actions, and we'll talk about that more as the story unfolds. Clay was even the one who pointed police to the cabin, telling them to search it because he was convinced his brother was involved in whatever happened to Mark. By the time police discovered Mark Peter's body, Glenn was already back in California where he was caught using the ID of a man named James Peters, who was Mark Peters' son. The big kicker is that police couldn't actually tie Mark's murder to Glenn because there was no evidence, so Glenn couldn't be charged for Mark's murder at that point. It's so frustrating because Mark was found in the family's cabin, Glenn had just been staying with him for a while, and Glenn is found with Mark's son's identification, so it's like obviously he did it, and it's so frustrating in situations like this when there's lack of evidence and lack of DNA, but you kind of just know and you still can't do anything about it. Right. There's this lack of DNA evidence. And at the same time, there's also this jurisdiction thing where it's like he fled back to California and Mark's body was found in Kentucky. So I think that was probably also very frustrating for police. And I'm not sure how police found out that Glenn was using James's ID. I read somewhere that he tried to use it to get painting jobs, um, to be like a house painter. So I'm not really sure how they would have found out. But this was separate from the police who were trying to find the murderer of Mark. It's now 1994 and Glenn landed a job painting Nicole Brown Simpson and O.J. Simpson's house. He called his brother Clay and said, guess who I'm partying with? Nicole Simpson. They got money, they're well off, and I'm taking her down. I'm sure everyone is familiar with the Simpson murder case, but we're going to run through some details anyway. And this information will be relevant to Glenn Rogers. On the night of Sunday, June 12th, 1994, Nicole Brown Simpson, who at the time was the ex-wife of football player O.J. Simpson, attended a school recital and afterwards went out to dinner at 6.30 p.m., with her two children, Sydney and Jason, along with her mother and some other family members at an upscale Italian restaurant in Brentwood, Los Angeles called Mezzaluna Trattoria. 
After dinner, Nicole took her kids for ice cream before they returned to their home at 875 Bundy Drive in Brentwood around 8 p.m. Sydney and Jason were Nicole and OJ's two children together, but they lived with Nicole. At 9.15 p.m., Nicole's sister called Mezzaluna to ask if they noticed some sunglasses that their mother could have left at the table. They were discovered and Ronald Goldman, who was a 25-year-old server at Mezzaluna and an aspiring actor, said that he would return the glasses to Nicole after his shift ended that night. Ron and Nicole had become friends and they often went out for coffee, dinner, to work out, or hit up a club to go dancing. All of Ron's friends reported that the two were not dating at all and never had, they were simply just friends. Since Ron knew where Nicole lived, he left the restaurant around 9.50pm to return the sunglasses. At around 10.15pm, the two were murdered. A man who lived near Nicole Brown Simpson's house was on a walk with his dog when he came across another dog with bloody paws at around 10.30 p.m. It appears that this man did not know it was Nicole's dog or where the dog even belonged. Shortly after midnight, a neighbor couple heard an agitated dog barking and they decided to follow it. That's when they discovered the bodies of Nicole and Ron who were outside the home dead and bloodied in the home's walkway. Then they phoned police. 35-year-old Nicole Brown Simpson was found in the fetal position in a pool of blood. She was stabbed seven times in the neck and scalp, and her throat had been slit across so severely that she was nearly decapitated. She also had defensive knife wounds on her hands. Ron Goldman suffered four fatal knife wounds, two were to his chest, one to his abdomen, and one to his neck. So it seems as if Ron was in the wrong place at the wrong time and lost his life because of it. Both Nicole and Ron were murdered and found outside of the house, and both Sidney and Jason Simpson were upstairs sleeping while the murders occurred. As I'm sure you all know, O.J. Simpson has been the largest suspect in this case by far, but others speculate that he had help from a man named Glenn Rogers. So let's go back and look at the day's events. OJ started his day at 7am where he played golf, then hours later enjoyed a game of cards at the clubhouse. Nicole started her morning shopping for toys. Then she prepares her daughter Sydney for her dance recital. Ron Goldman played softball in the morning before going home to get dressed and ready for a shift at Mezzaluna. OJ went home after playing cards around 2pm and called different women, including his girlfriend, Paula Barberi. The two got in a fight because she wanted to attend Sydney's dance recital with him that night, and OJ said no. She then decided to fly to Vegas with singer Michael Bolton. OJ's friend Cato was staying with him and witnessed this conversation. At 4.30pm, Nicole and her family arrived to Sydney's middle school for her recital. Fifteen minutes later, OJ arrives and sits behind Nicole and the Brown family. At 6.15pm, the recital ended and OJ enjoys some light conversation with the Brown family. Between 6.30pm and 7pm, Nicole and her family arrive at Mezzaluna. OJ goes home and tells his friend Cato that he's angry that Nicole is wearing a tight dress and not letting him go to dinner with the family. Mind you, they've been divorced for a year and a half at this point. At 9.10pm, OJ and Cato go to McDonald's to pick up some food before returning back to OJ's house. OJ ate in the car on the way home. 
At 9.36pm, Kato sees OJ wearing a dark-colored sweatsuit. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you are allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medications that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, just visit Juvederm.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volix XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment, no maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volix XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. As true crime listeners, you're aware of the dangers out there in the world. So why not keep your home as safe and secure as possible? Daphne and I do this by using Simply Safe. For award-winning security and peace of mind wherever your summer plans take you. When we get ready for our summer trips this year, I will feel so much better about leaving the house knowing that Simply Safe has our back, just freeing me from my constant anxieties. And also something I love is that their system blankets your entire home in protection from break-ins to fires to floods. And with indoor and outdoor cameras to choose from, you will feel safe any time of day or night. And Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring agents to help stop crimes in real time. Which is part of why they were named the best home security system of 2024. Simply Safe has given us and so many listeners real peace of mind, and we want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off of any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com slash going west. There's no safe like Simply Safe. With how busy our schedules are, Heath and I are constantly ordering food and groceries from DoorDash. It just saves us a ton of time when we can't run to the store for ingredients 
or don't feel like cooking and want delicious takeout instead. But delivery fees can definitely add up. And this is why we have Dash Pass by DoorDash. Dash Pass is an exclusive membership from DoorDash that gets you unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, as well as member-only deals and discounts. Which is why Dash Pass is the most affordable way to get anything and everything you need delivered right to your door, and fast, for just $9.99 a month. Which means DoorDash quickly pays for itself in just two orders on average. So whether you order every day or just a couple of times a month, you'll save with Dash Pass. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for Dash Pass today only on DoorDash and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. What's up, true crime fans? Are you looking for something fun and interesting to do with your friends and family? What about something involving a murder? Have you ever listened to a podcast and thought, maybe I could be a detective? Then you need to get the game Hunt a Killer, the murder mystery box that immerses you in an ongoing experience. It's a monthly subscription box, and with every delivery, you will dive deeper into what it's like to become a detective. So instead of sitting by yourself, staring at your phone screen all night, you'll sift through piles of documents, evidence, audio recordings, and case files while you eliminate suspects until you crack the case and catch the killer. And trust me, guys, Daphne and I love this game. There's nothing better to do on a Friday night than crack open a bottle of wine and try to solve a murder case. It's so fun. Heath and I recently sat down and did our first box together, and it was such a blast, and we're so excited to receive box two and to continue solving this crime. And they actually have a few different boxes, so once you're done with one murder, you can move on to another. So whether you're trying to set up a date night or just sit around the table with family and have some fun. Or give someone a gift. Absolutely. You have to check out Hunt a Killer. Go over to huntakiller.com and use promo code GOINGWEST to get 20% off your first subscription box. That's huntakiller.com using promo code GOINGWEST, no spaces, for 20% off your first box. That is such a good deal, and we know that you guys are going to love it because we love it. Happy hunting, guys. Hey, true crime fans. Heath here. Are you looking for a new true crime binge? Check out our friends over at Crime Salad. It's a case-by-case podcast hosted by Ashley and Ricky. They have a new episode every Wednesday, and they do an amazing job of discussing various murder and disappearance cases. Sometimes it's hard to find the right podcast for you, but these guys are just well-rounded. They're very clear when they talk, and they have amazing production value, and they're also a couple of really awesome people, so go listen to Crime Salad. Wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, so at 9.36 p.m., Cato saw OJ wearing a dark-colored sweatsuit, as Heath just stated. It's important to note that in OJ's testimony, he stated he was at his house that night sleeping, then later stated that he was playing golf in the yard. Regardless, he stated that his white Ford Bronco was parked out on the street in front of his house. However, at 9.45 p.m., a man walking his dog by OJ's house later reported that he did not see the white Bronco on the street. At 10.02 p.m., 
OJ tried to call his girlfriend Paula on the phone that he had in his Bronco. So this proves that OJ was in his car at this time. For a reference, his house was just a seven-minute drive to Nicole's. And remember, they were likely murdered around 10.15 p.m. That night, OJ was to fly to Chicago. So at 10.22 p.m., Alan Park, the limo driver who was supposed to take OJ to the airport that night, arrived to the house. He did not remember seeing the Bronco outside. He said he looked at the street pretty carefully since he was looking for the proper street number. And remember, folks, this is before GPS. He circled the block a few times since he was early, and at 10.40 p.m., Alan Park buzzed OJ's intercom but got no response. Three minutes later, he tried again. No response. Six minutes after that, he tried again, and still no response. A minute later, someone spotted a white Bronco at the intersection of Bundy and Dorothy, which was just about a block from where Nicole's house was. Five minutes later, Alan Park sees a man who looked around six feet tall and 200 pounds wearing dark clothes walk across OJ's driveway and into his house. Within seconds of entering the home, the downstairs lights turn on. A minute later, Alan decides to buzz OJ's intercom again. And this time, OJ answers explaining that he overslept and he was just getting out of the shower. There are so many details to this murder, but since this episode is about Glenn Rogers, we don't want to delve too deep into it because everything that's online has to do with OJ's involvement. So going back to Glenn, we know that his older brother Clay relayed to investigators later that he is convinced his brother was involved in the 875 Bundy Drive murders. And like we mentioned, Clay stated that Glenn told him in a phone conversation that he wanted to take Nicole down because she was wealthy and he wanted her money. Glenn Rogers really wasn't publicly brought into the case until about 2012 when ID released the documentary called My Brother the Serial Killer, which is a documentary about Glenn Rogers and his crimes, told by his brother Clay. The investigators that had worked on Glenn Rogers' other murder cases are convinced as well that Glenn was involved, and here's why. Apparently, OJ had hired Glenn to steal a pair of $20,000 diamond earrings from Nicole Brown Simpson's house that OJ had given to her previously. Since the two were divorced, he wanted them back. OJ reportedly told Glenn that they were all going to a dance recital that night and that he knew when Nicole would not be home so he could grab them. He also said that if she was home, quote, you may have to kill the bitch. So let's unpack this for a sec. This isn't a very surprising claim because we know that OJ was abusive towards Nicole in the past and there are many, many reports of this domestic abuse in this relationship and other relationships that he's had. So it's not like he's this picture-perfect man who is saying this. It's, It's pretty easy to believe this conversation would take place because I think that he had a lot of anger towards Nicole. Right, and from what we found out years after this is that he was arrested for kind of a similar thing where he had hired someone to take back some memorabilia for him. Right, so it doesn't seem very unlikely at all that he would want this jewelry back from Nicole and that he would want her to die potentially in the act as well. Right, and we also can't put it past Glenn because of the abusive problems that he's been through as well 
where he has been abused and also has abused others. So it seems pretty likely that the two of them probably did work together on this. So part of the information regarding Glenn's involvement was given by Clay Rogers, but the other information is actually given by Glenn directly to investigators in 2011. In the years leading up to his confession, he would send drawings to investigators stating that there were clues hidden within them. One of the drawings he sent included a cemetery with names written on individual crosses. One read Nicole and another read Ron. He even drew photos of what the murder weapon looked like and described the murder in horrific detail. According to Glenn, O.J. had told him where there was a spare set of keys at the back door of Nicole's home. When Glenn found the keys, he walked towards the front of the home, and in that very moment, Ron Goldman came through the front gate of the house. Since Ron was now in the way, Glenn had to kill him. That's when Glenn stabbed Ron. Glenn then stated that Nicole came outside and he stabbed her once, then she fainted. Ron wasn't yet dead and he came back for a fight. Then Glenn stabbed him again and threw him against a tree, which is where his body was later found. Glenn then went back to Nicole and pulled her hair back before slitting her throat and killing her while she was unconscious. Apparently, OJ didn't want to get his hands dirty, so he was waiting in his Ford Bronco nearby. When Nicole and Ron were dead, he went back to check out the crime. At the crime scene, there were two different men's shoe prints found. One of them matched the size of OJ's shoes as well as a specific shoe OJ owned. The other was never matched to anyone, but Glenn's shoes were never tested. There was also blood and skin DNA found under Nicole's fingernails that did not match that of O.J. Simpson. Interestingly enough as well, Nicole's watch on her wrist was found broken, and that was actually Glenn's M.O. In most of his murders, he would leave a broken timepiece or watch near the crime scene. And by the way, Glenn had never stolen the diamonds because Nicole had hid them somewhere else. I just want to say that one thing that really stands out to me in this case is that the kids were home upstairs sleeping. And I just, it's hard for me to imagine that OJ would go in there and kill his ex-wife while his children are there because they could have seen him. They were old enough to be able to identify, oh, that's my dad. And I really truly believe that OJ was involved in this. I don't think he's innocent by any means, but it's hard for me to believe that he would be the actual one who's committing the murder with his children upstairs. Right, and I think that's exactly why OJ hired Glenn to do his dirty work because he didn't want his children to potentially ID him in this in this case. But I think that in OJ's mind, I think that he was believing that Glenn was just going to steal these diamond earrings for him and then it just turned out so much more sinister because obviously Glenn can't control his emotions and went straight to murder. It would also make sense that Glenn did it since no murder weapon was ever found. However, according to Alan Park, OJ's limo driver, there was a bag amongst OJ's other luggage that OJ would not let Alan put into the car. OJ insisted on carrying it himself, and it's widely believed that it contained the murder weapon and bloody clothes. A lot of people speculate that he brought this with him to Chicago and got rid of the evidence there. 
To me, I'm not sure if that's true because as far as I know, there was still airport security and bag scanners in 1994. And obviously airport security really tightened after 9-11. But this was seven years prior to 9-11 and I still think that they had technology to scan a bag and tell if there's a knife in it. Yeah, definitely. And I don't think that being a celebrity is going to give you leeway on putting your bag through airport security. I tried to look up 1994 airport security and, and I just really couldn't find that much, so I'm not sure on that. At the scene of the crime, OJ's hat was also found and there was blood evidence in his Bronco. His blood was also found at the scene of the crime. Investigators who have worked with Glenn believe that Glenn set it up this way to frame OJ for the murder. And the reason why OJ's blood was found at the scene was because he had a cut on his finger. I originally thought that it was pretty hard to believe that Glenn could be clever enough to frame OJ so well, but after finding out that he had sent these secret messages within drawings for years to investigators that was essentially him confessing made me realize how smart he really is. Not to mention, Glenn's brother Clay told investigators that Glenn took a gold angel pin off of Nicole's body and mailed it to his mother in Ohio the following day. She even wore this pin to a future murder trial for Glenn, not to spoil anything. It was known that Nicole Brown Simpson collected angel memorabilia. This stolen angel pin was never looked into because Glenn Rogers was never made an official suspect for the murder of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman. So regarding the angel pin, Glenn wrote a letter to his brother Clay saying that during Glenn's murder trial, he asked his mom to wear the angel pin and she was photographed in it. Glenn explained to Clay that this was a hidden clue as well, almost like an Easter egg, and no one got it at the time. This also kind of proved to me that Glenn knows exactly what he's doing and he actually is pretty clever. Um, I really wish that someone could have confirmed that that was indeed her angel pin. But that was part of Glenn's way of saying, I did do this. See, my mom is wearing Nicole's angel pin, so I had to have done it. He's definitely from the backwoods, no doubt about it, but he seems like he's intelligent enough to do some of these things. And like you said, you know, he would leave that M.O., the smash timepiece at his crime scenes. So it's almost like he, he really wants to leave these clues, these breadcrumbs for investigators to, to find. And I think the obvious question here is, if O.J. didn't commit the murders and knew that Glenn did it, why didn't he bring Glenn into it and tell police who it really was? I really believe that if Glenn did do it, I, I honestly think that O.J. was involved in some way. Just like Glenn says, O.J. hired him to do it and then came to the scene after the crime had been committed. If that's true... I think OJ didn't want to bring Glenn into it because then he would be incriminating himself. And since OJ knew he didn't commit the murder, he also knew he wouldn't be charged for it, which he wasn't, by the way. He was found not guilty of the murder. So maybe he wanted to leave Glenn out of it so no one would ever find out exactly what happened. So the year after the murder of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman, Glenn was arrested for assault with a deadly weapon in Los Angeles and spent about three months in prison. Within three months, Glenn was again arrested for beating his girlfriend, and he only spent two days in prison for this. The frustrating part of this is that Glenn clearly has this very consistent abusive and violent behavior, and he was actually on probation at the time of this assault. 
So he should have received a two and a half year sentence, but the judge had for some reason been unaware of his most recent previous sentence, which is why he was let go after just two days. We know you guys love a good mystery, especially one with twists and turns. Am I right? This is why you guys are going to love June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker while she tries to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder in the roaring 1920s. In this hidden object mystery game, put your detective skills to the test. While you're on this quest to uncover a scandalous hidden family secret, you can customize your very own luxurious estate island and let your imagination run wild. Daphne and I actually love to play this game together because you can chat with and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. It is truly so much fun. You guys are going to love it. So what do you think? Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. I know all of you guys love listening to thrilling stories, so why not check out some thriller audiobooks on Audible? That is all I've been doing lately when I'm cooking, cleaning, or driving, because Audible includes an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre. And they have thousands of podcasts from popular favorites like ours that you guys can listen to. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. And on top of that, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. With Audible, the time is now more than ever to embrace the breathtaking, sinister, and shocking tales that have enthralled you, especially with brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. And I am very much gripped in the audiobook that I'm listening to now on Audible of The Drowning Woman. It is so good. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash going west or text going west to 500 500. That's audible.com slash going west or text going west to 500 500. Within weeks of getting out of jail for beating his girlfriend in September 1995, Glenn went to a bar in Van Nuys, California, which is in Los Angeles, called McRed's Bar and met a 33-year-old woman named Sandra Gallagher. At this point, Glenn was also 33 years old. After they spent some time together at the bar, Sandra offered him a ride home, to which he accepted. Once they arrived at her pickup truck, Glenn raped her, stabbed her to death, and set her truck on fire. One week later, Glenn fled Los Angeles and went to Jackson, Mississippi, where he met a 34-year-old woman named Linda Price at a state fair. The two hit it off and very quickly moved in together. It's unknown if they got an apartment together or if he moved into her apartment since it was so fast, but they were definitely living in the same place for a couple weeks. On November 3rd, 1995, Linda's family went over to her apartment because they hadn't heard from her in almost a week and they were worried. And by the way, this is about a month after she had met Glenn. So the family decided that they were going to go over to Linda's place and check on her. When they entered her home, they found Linda's mutilated body laying in her bathtub. Clay, Glenn's brother, recalls a voicemail that was left on their mother's answering machine by Glenn the night Linda would have been murdered. 
you could hear what sounded like Glenn slapping someone while saying, I did it again. She was a bad girl, but I'm making her pay for it, just like you made us pay mommy. The day after Linda's body was found, Glenn was on a bus from Louisiana to Tampa, Florida. Within four days, he met another 34-year-old woman by the name of Tina Maria Cribs in a Tampa bar. He bought her a drink and the two talked for a while. Afterwards, they went back to a motel and that was the last time anyone ever saw Tina. Her body was found stabbed to death in the motel room. After Glenn murdered her, he drove off in Tina's car and returned to Bossier City, Louisiana. The day he arrived in Louisiana, he picked up another woman in a bar. She was 37-year-old Andy Sutton and murdered her on the waterbed in her room, which was found punctured. Her roommate found her stabbed to death. Glenn then headed to Beattyville, Kentucky, where he visited his family. So his family was actually really worried that he had done something because they knew of his past, and Clay had been told numerous things by Glenn himself that they decided they needed to let police know that they had found him and he was at their house. When Glenn found out the police were coming, he fled by car and got himself involved in a high-speed pursuit that ended in Waco, Kentucky. When police brought him in, they sat him down and let him know that they were looking at him for the murder of five people, not including Nicole and Ron, by the way. Glenn hadn't even requested the presence of an attorney before he told police that he had murdered over 70 people, but this statement was later retracted. Since police didn't have any proof of this, but knew he was dangerous, they charged him with endangering a police officer and criminal mischief. Something that really pisses me off is that now Clay is coming forward with all this information and saying at the time that it was occurring that Glenn was saying all of this stuff to him. And if that's true, then it's just, I don't understand why Clay didn't come out with that at the time because he could have saved so many lives if he told police what was going on. And I just don't understand why it took him over 15 years to come forward with it. I mean, a couple, there's a couple reasons why I think, and one of them could have been that he was potentially afraid of Glenn. He was afraid that Glenn would have came after him. And I think I did read in an interview that he had actually threatened Clay when he found out that him and his mother had turned on Glenn. So that's a possibility there. There's also the possibility that, you know, this is his brother. He wants to protect him. And then third, I think that... um you know, Clay was involved in some criminal activity himself. I mean, he had mentioned that earlier on in his life, him and Glenn would do crimes to get, commit crimes together. So it's, you know, it's not out of the question to think that he may have been trying to save himself as well. Yeah, I mean, that definitely makes a lot of sense. I think it's a good point that he was also a criminal himself back in the day, and maybe he didn't want Glenn to turn on him. So on October 21st, 1996, a forensic psychologist conducted tests on Glenn and diagnosed him with chronic psychotic disturbance. They also had Glenn take an IQ test and discovered that he had an IQ of 76, which is just six points above being mentally inadequate. And just to clear something up from earlier, when we said that we think that Glenn might be savvy and smart, we think that he's very street smart as a career criminal, that he knows how to get away with these crimes. But not book smart. I mean, I've seen him write a letter. I, I read a little excerpt of a letter that he wrote to Clay talking about the gold angel pin, and he couldn't even spell Nicole. Like, he just, 
he wasn't literate. He wasn't book smart. He wasn't intelligent in that way. We just think that maybe in other ways he was clever. And he had to have been to have gotten away with all these crimes for so long. And to be that seasoned, to have committed crimes for over 20 years, you kind of just have to be good at it. Nearly a year later, on May 7th, 1997, Glenn Rogers' eight-day murder trial ended and he was found guilty of murder in the first degree and arson in the state of California. So California and Florida had reached an extradition agreement so he could stand trial in California for the Florida murder too. He was found guilty of murder in the first degree for Tina Marie Cribs in Tampa, Florida, robbery with a weapon, grand theft of a motor vehicle, and the murder of Sandra Gallagher in her car in Van Nuys, California, and burning her vehicle. Glenn Rogers was sentenced to death for his crimes in 1999 in Los Angeles at the age of 38. Glenn was scheduled to be put to death on Valentine's Day 1999, but he filed an appeal to the Florida Supreme Court claiming that the state didn't represent enough evidence to support the crimes he was charged for. His appeal was delayed two years, but was then denied. In 2005, he filed yet another appeal describing that the closing arguments of his case were improper. At this point, Glenn still sits on death row over 20 years after he was put there. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of Going West. Yes, thank you so much, everyone. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, and we'll have an all-new episode for you guys next week. If you just can't get enough of Going West and you need bonus episodes, go to patreon.com slash goingwestpodcast. Just five bucks a month really helps out the show, and we donate 10% of proceeds to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And check this out. We're also on Instagram at goingwestpodcast. And you can also find us over on Twitter at Going West Pod, And don't forget to check us out on Facebook. Also, we still have some key fobs in this store. If you guys want to buy one, go to goingwestpodcast.com. So for everybody out there in the world, don't be a stranger. Don't be a stranger.